When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. My name's Rob Weaver. I'm the technical editor-in-chief here. And today I'm joined by Wynn Masters. He's uh, a downhill racer from New Zealand that's been competing at the top of his game for what, 13, 14 years now, Win? Is that right? Yeah, 12, 12 years. 12 years in Europe anyway, but I've been competing okay. for a, a long time before that as well, so quite a while. So I first met you back in, I think it was 2007 when we were both living in Cairns. Yeah. And I remember that time really fondly. We used to ride together loads and you were always talking about going over and racing at the World Cups. But if we can just backtrack slightly and just, if you can just give us some idea about how you actually got into uh, mountain biking in the first place, that'd be great. Yeah, um, well, I pretty much was kind of an opal for the way I got into it. Um, normally, most people came from BMX or um, started on a BMX, but I started straight on a mountain bike. And actually, my first um, mountain bike was a GT as well. So, uh Things have really gone full circle there. I got a GT Paloma when I was 11 years old and pretty much just started building jumps with my little brother, Ed, in our parents' backyard. They let us uh, dig up the backyard. So um, we dug it up. The jumps got bigger and we um, managed to bend plenty of forks at the the early stages. But um, (laughs) that was how it all kicked off and the jumps just got bigger and bigger and then we started – doing the local races around us. Um, there was a good small club series, so we'd just do those. And from there to the national series and then kept going, really. Because, yeah, so I, I, from um, from the sort of bit of research I've done, just looking back, you've represented the country, is it 11 times now? And you've also been uh, in downhill, that yep. is. And you've also won the national champs once as well is that right yeah yeah elite national champs once um junior couple times i think so okay it's been been a bit of a run there um don't been to the world champs plenty of times uh that's yeah. that's been pretty cool first one i did actually was four crofts in um red rook as it was a new zealand one so was that in 2006 yeah 2006 and I think... How'd you get on? Uh, I got caught up in a big crash, so um, <laughs> I think I got one round and then I got a big, decent crash, but um, got a good picture of me crashing, so uh, it's always, always a good memory. And then um, I think it's been fairly well documented that since then you kind of burst onto the World Cup scene as a privateer, and over the course of well, not a number of years, you actually managed to break into the, the top 30, sometimes the top 20 as well. Um, and, and obviously, you've, you know, you've, you've been one of the few that's managed to work their way up from paying their own way to getting a full factory deal. Um, how do you feel, I guess now, how do you feel that privateers have been treated? Is it harder for them to kind of forge their way in the sport now? Yeah, I think... Um the sport, the level is definitely elevated as well. So, like, overall, everyone's going faster, which does make it harder for a privateer. 
and then um, maybe in some ways it's it is better for a privateer on the bike side that you can pretty much buy the exact bike that everyone's riding. Yeah. But it was probably kind of similar when I was doing it because everyone wanted an iron horse and Sam Hill had an iron horse. So I got an iron horse because Sam Hill had an iron horse and I bought a second-hand one that first year. So I, actually um, the whole season I raced in Europe, the frame was cracked around the head tube. Right. <laughs> but um, so I was just <laughs> battling away really. But I think – you could still do it, but it's much harder. They've made the um, point structure really difficult to get the UCI points in order to race. And from what yeah. I hear now, for with the COVID season last year, which not many privateers raced at all, um, yeah. it's going to be hard for them to get a start on the World Cup in this year. So things are getting pretty complicated from the points structure. I think the UCI doesn't quite encourage them to come. And um, yeah. it's pretty sad, really, because there can be those guys from the privateer that, that make it through to being a professional rider, and there's been a number of them in the last few years. But it, it is like um, not not the uh, well-known way to do it, I guess. Like a lot of the main, main guys have come through as juniors already professional, really. So Yeah, okay. Because you, I mean, I remember you personally, you, so like you said, you're on the iron horse with the cracked head tube. And then was it Ancelotti after that? Yeah, Ancelotti that after right? that. So I like, I think um, in Fort William was my first World Cup I qualified for. At Maribor, I reckon I should, should have qualified if I knew a little bit more. Is this in 2008, yeah? Yeah, in 2008. At, at the time, I didn't really know enough. And um, I thought the race was over once I had one crash. So I kind of okay. just rolled down and it was a hard lesson to learn because I was not that far off, so I probably could have made it in. Um, yeah. Going forward, I, I'd never like give up no matter what happens in a run. Um, yeah. Always keep pushing. So it was kind of good good way to learn that right off the bat as well. So yeah. then um, in Fort William, I'd qualified and done all right and then I spoke to Tommaso Ancelotti who runs the uh, Ancelotti uh, family-owned Italian bike company. Um, and he just said with, potentially we could do something next year, and then it started from there, really. Because that was you and Brooke on that team? Yeah, was me it? and Brooke. So, yeah. Um, so that must have been heaps of fun. Yeah, it was good. We were definitely um, living pretty isolated in Italy where we were. We were in the mountains in Tuscany, like, pretty much the middle of nowhere really and we'd live at the top of this like small ski field and um just it was only me and Brooke that were living up there the rest of the people that worked there would go home during the day uh, like after after <laughs> work so it, it would be just me and up on this mountain it was quite you know it was quite an experience but it was good because we could all we could do there was just ride, so we just ride every day. And the track was nine minutes long, so we'd do this track like I don't know ten times a day, and then we'd just go for a pedal, and that that was our day every day. Amazing! So no wonder you're in such good shape then. Yeah, we were pretty fit, um, and and really downhill fit as well. And then yeah. then you're just like kind of at one with your bike as well, but we didn't realize maybe then as much as good as it, as we had it you know like um it was so simple living but that's all you need to do well at downhill like if you're going to go somewhere and stay there and just train you're going to eventually get good at it and we we were already coming in not not too bad as well so it was pretty successful for uh, a small program um brooke took the junior world title so uh, that was pretty much made the whole year for us. Yeah, I bet. And then from Ancelotti, you moved on to, you were riding a Lapierre, is that right? Was it the play biker yeah, team? Yeah, play biker team. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, is that with Sean Connor? Did you have Sean Connor on Yeah, the team Sean O'Connor, yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. So, yeah. The Australian, he was a junior, well, he might have been in his first year elite when he came with, with me, yeah, because he was junior with when at World Champs in Canberra. 
Um, so it was myself, Sean O'Connor, and Nathan Rankin, and it was another Italian team. It's kind of like a bit of a theme. I went for a few Italian teams. Um, yeah. They kind of – sometimes it, it feels like a little bit of a second home for me going back to Italian races even now. Like um, oh, nice. just, just still the people are so welcoming and, and they all know me from years of racing there, so it's kind of cool. But yeah. um, that team – was a Lapier on the Lapier bike and put together by uh, Romano Favino. He's he's a Lapier distributor in Italy. Yeah, and um, did a season there. That was we were living at um, Aosta, so at the bottom of Pila then. Yeah, and that was pretty good. Again, like a dream spot to be based. Like just two downer runs every day and. The track from Pila down to Aosta is still like one of my favourite tracks. It's like super long, super rough. I think it's around 10 to 15 minutes long, so it's proper um, training. We'd do that after a day of riding up on the mountain, so it's good. And you you had some really good results that year. You had, was it 22nd in Schladming? Yeah, um, done, done well at Schladming that year, and then... I think the standout for me in 2010 was to qualify um, fifth in Champery. That was gonna. I was just about to get onto that actually because yep. I couldn't remember whether it was Sladman or Champery where you qualified in fifth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I remember watching it on the live timing, thinking, "Oh, this is incredible! Wow!" <laughs> yeah. So that was like it was just a super gnarly race, and it's like um, I felt like in the when the conditions got really extreme then I would have like more of a chance or I'd, right. I'd maybe even gave myself more of a chance whereas other people would write themselves off so like it's probably like a mental strength thing at the at that time to just like approach it confidently rather than as a negative a lot of people would be like how can you ride this track in the wet because it was super steep and there's just gnarly ruts but um I was still riding flats at the time, and I remember, like, that run was, like, pretty messy. Like, I could hardly even stay on the bike. I was dabbing everywhere, and I did, like, two feet off down some sections, like, just tripoding. But so I was, yeah. like, when I crossed the line and I was fifth, I couldn't believe it, really. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, qualifying in the top 10, I mean, qualifying in the top 20 is a an amazing feat in itself, but actually getting top 10, then, you know, top five, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah it was, um, so- was a surprise at the time. So what happened in the final? What what sort of went down? Did you feel the pressure at the top? Yeah, Were you more nervous than normal? It, it was pretty stressful, to be honest. Um, the first time you're up there with those guys, it's quite um, – it's very quiet and pretty tense. Um, in the morning practice, I felt really good and I was, like, pushing probably, like, too hard. So I, like, got more confident probably like and I was staying right. on. So I was like fired up to go even faster, which was the wrong approach at a track like that. You've still just got to stay on. Um, so I just really wanted to give it everything, and I definitely did, but I crashed three times in the process <laughs> and uh, came down 30-something. So, But still a solid result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a tough, Such a tough track. At, at the time, it would be a good result, but um, it was like pretty – uh, a tough one to swallow because I was like, I knew I had speed there. Like, there's been a few times like that, but um, yeah. I guess those are when you learn, and um, that's the only way to learn. Well, yes, yeah, this is it. Sometimes it's uh, it takes those those uh, those race runs to really build your sort of experience, I guess. Yeah, but but you still sort of been banging out results though. Looking back, sort of. 2010, 2011, I guess at some point, was it 2011 or 2012, you switched over to Evil? Yeah, yeah, 2011, but um, I had a pretty big injury coming into that, so okay, I never really got going on Evil. Like, um, Was that just for one year? Was it was a one-year contract, but um, I got injured in the summer, like the off-season in New Zealand, okay. and um, I... Got, had a like a compound fracture to my radius and ulna, so like my right arm, both the bones, and one of them came out. Um, and then it got infected, so it was quite 
it dragged on quite a bit. And then the surgeon, my surgeon was like, yeah, it's good. You're healed. You can go. So I was like, sweet. I'm off to Europe. Go and racing. Get into like the first few races. Like I went straight literally from the plane. I think we drove straight to a race. So um, <laughs> it's like, so I like emailed him. I'm like, yeah, it's quite sore. He's like, yeah, it will be quite sore. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's a good sign. Then he said, it's all right. Um, did actually five races on it and it wasn't wasn't bad like I was I was improving because I was like getting back up to speed and it was hard going straight back to Europe from an injury like that mm. um but then in Fort William I just hit a hole and like braced myself and it bent all the metal plates I think I saw yeah is this when it was your arm looked like it bananaed yeah, yeah it was like there was a few pictures on dirt magazine it was like a properly like a banana and I felt it yeah. like break or bend, whatever happened um, when I did it. So I was like, kept going, but got to the finish, I don't know, 50th or something. But um, <laughs> And then, then I was kind of like, because it was my first like proper professional team that I've been on, like where I was actually could have made some money, I was kind yeah. of like, well, I've got to go to the next race. I don't have a choice. So I was like, I went to the next race um, and I I actually qualified in, in Leo Gang, but I remember I couldn't really like hold on very tight and anything off a drop was like painful. So I was just gritting my teeth and trying to get on with it, but um, it was it was pretty hard. And then in the end, I was like, well, I can't do that any longer and, and had to go home after that race. But I still qualified and did the final at Leo Gang. I think I got 60th, but still still got 20 people. So I was like, <laughs> all right, considering. I mean, I guess that that dogged determination shows that when you look back through your results, just how many races you've done and how well you've done, how many, you know, just these days qualifying for a World Cup is a, battle in itself and it feels like you're just constantly chipping away and, and you've always been up there i mean after that year on evil you went to bulls i think is that right the german team yeah in 2012 i didn't really race because like um the first ride one of the early rides coming back like i just got back up to speed up and i snapped my handlebars and broke my other wrist so so that was like absolute disaster. But um that that was like a complicated heel as well. They they ended up having to do a bone graft and move the blood supply to it because it was a scaphoid bone which doesn't get much blood. But um I finally got that good and then um actually Mad Dog Boris Boris Bayer, the photographer who shoots alongside Sven Martin quite a lot, um he reached out to me and he asked if I'd be interested in writing for his magazine that he was working for a team that they were starting. Like I'd never heard of Bulls Bikes, but um, it turns out they were like quite a big um, German mainstream brand. And um, I, in the end, it worked out and that became like my first real professional deal. And you had some great results there. Yeah. I, I see 2015... 11th at Fort Bell. Yeah, yeah, that was probably my World Cup highlight. Um, and everything was going really well on that on that bike. We had, like, things pretty dialed. Um, it wasn't like there – were, there were a lot of things that I would have made better if I had had more input, but we didn't – we had, like, limited input. But that bike was actually really good looking back. Okay. And um, it worked really well. It was like – Virtually an early common cell because it was a high pivot, similar looking design. And um, like they literally ha- had a good package back then, but um, there were a lot of little things that weren't finished. So it's like some races I'd be starting and um, the frame would flex out of the start gate because I, I you probably, even then, I would have been even uh, a lot stronger, did a lot more gym then. Uh, I'd like flex the frame and knock the chain off out of the start every like did a couple of races <laughs> like that and just getting really angry because like 
you'd be putting in all this work and your bike yeah. can't even go out of the start, you know, like. <laughs> so I was, there was a couple of times where I threw my toys a bit, but um, it's probably um, rightly so, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, by the sounds of things. And that actually does bring me on to something I wanted to talk to you about because so we've already touched on your iron horse from 2008 and and when you and I used to ride together I remember you sort of saying about how you just wanted to ride an iron horse with flat pedals but obviously since that time you've changed bike brands and sponsors a number of times I was going to ask you just how you feel about adapting to new bikes and if you've had not asking you to call out any brands for example but just how you've got around issues you potentially had like how did you get around that chain falling off incident for example yeah we had to like stuff like that you kind of have to work around it and try to make a solution it's normally like a bit of a bodge up solution and there's often a lot of stuff behind closed doors that people won't see and um or maybe wouldn't even believe like some of the stuff i've seen on some bikes like i i can recall another one with when i was on the bulls team um I'd done, we're at Val de Sol, so my first World Cup at Fort William on that team, I got a flat tyre, so I couldn't qualify. It's like, oh, well, well, you can't do much about that. So I was like, go to this next one. I'm fired up for it and riding pretty well, like feeling good. Um, we go up for qualifying. I'd done my warm-up, looked down on my frame, and it's like a massive crack around the edge of like... <laughs> not even like 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 the iron horse was rideable in in some ways this was like right, right around the head tube i was like um what do i do like i'm like 10 minutes from my start and then um one of the other mechanics he's like yeah i reckon you can ride that nico volios would ride frames like that <laughs> <laughs> and and i'm like all right, well, if he would do it, then I've got to do it, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, and, of course. And one of my other teammates had the same situation, so he was like, uh, he's like, I'm not riding it. Uh, and I'm like, well, fair enough, if you don't. But I'm like, I have to, because if I didn't qualify again, then I'm like, people start to forget you pretty quick in this sport. So I was like, well, I'll just do it, ride as smooth as I can. And I, it was like pretty smooth run for... Um, 38th in qualifying, I think. Okay. And then and the bike held together. Yep, it held together. But then my team manager, a German fella, he had to drive overnight back to um, Cologne in Germany from um, Val de Sol, which is kind of, um, it's in northern Italy. It was like a huge drive. Drive back there, pick up a frame, because we didn't have a spare frame with us, but there was one at the office. One of the engineers meet him there in the night, give him the frame. And then we drove, he drove back in the morning, like didn't nonstop. They built the frame up and then I did finals. <laughs> <laughs> and did any of that phase you mentally? Did that, did it kind of, I, I don't know, worry you a little think, bit? Did you feel like that sort of performance anxiety sort of creeping in? Or were you just sort of, more it is like, what it is? more frustrate you because like that's, issues you shouldn't really have but um i think all those years like when i was doing it by myself with no options and no help at all that like prepares you for that so you're not even like it's just roll with the punches really so i guess things have changed quite a bit now because you signed for gt what 2016 is that right yeah 2016 yeah and you've been with them ever since so i guess while you were on um while bulls was you know, uh, well, same as Evil, a proper professional team. I yep. guess GT's, you know, another sort of step up the ladder. So are those, I take it those problems aren't a problem anymore. Yeah, it's much, um, going to GT is like kind of finding my place um, where everything works in a, a brand that, where I fit quite well. Um, so that's why, I've been already five years and now just signed another two years. So it's um, good to 
be able to stick with one brand and, and be happy with the people and the products you're on. So, um, and do you get, do you get a say in the bikes in, in terms of development and stuff like that? Because obviously you saw the, the shift from the last Fury over to the, the current bike you're on now, which has the, yep. um, the higher pivot. So were you heavily involved in that uh, development? We, we give, um, feedback from all our racing experience pretty much. And then that that goes into creating the new bike. And now, as I'm longer with the brand, getting more and more involved in the um, process of the new bikes, like a little bit further ahead, like bikes that we're not on yet, but um, that's what we're working on. And do you enjoy that aspect of it? Yeah, that's pretty cool to... I think that will be very rewarding when when you get the final product and then it's what exactly what you had envisioned or you had in mind you know and you know that your feedback created that well yeah i mean it sounds like a really i mean i guess from my side of it i'd love to be involved in that side of things so i can imagine if it gives you the opportunity to make a faster bike which is ultimately what you guys are trying to achieve it must be really rewarding yeah for sure it's a it's a fun process as well like just and like building working out what what you can improve and looking at what other bike companies are doing it's like it's quite interesting yeah um and then around that sort of the the move to gt um i guess after all those years of um the privateer life then riding for you know smaller teams was it a relief to sort of to get onto a bigger brand that can give you some sort of financial stability because i know in the past you've um in a, in some of your podcasts even you've spoken about salaries and stuff like that for you was that a big um relief yeah it, it was good to or finally earn like a reasonable wage like living wage because yeah. there's a lot of uh brands out there or writers that don't even earn a living wage you know like that's that's pretty tough. Yeah. And you justify it when you're young. You're like, well, um, I'm doing what I enjoy, so you don't really see it as a problem, I think. But then I think now looking back, like you definitely, if you're competing at the top end, you deserve to be earning at least a living wage. And But, but also I... I have to say that um, some guys don't take it the initiative to promote themselves as well as they can as ever. So I think that's that's another side of the puzzle that's become even bigger with the current situation. So, well, I mean, I'm glad you've said that because that brings me nicely onto our next subject, which is what I was going to say is it feels like these days it isn't purely about the racing for you. Um, obviously, that's I guess the foundation of it all, but you're really well known on social media. You've got a huge following on Instagram, for example, you bought out win TV from the races, which I think everyone loves. Um, you, you know, you pioneered the whole wheelie Wednesday thing, which you seem to be so well known for now, which is crazy. How important do you feel that I guess is to not, not just you, but for other riders to have that, that sort of i guess complete package uh, i think i think now that's like really important like um unless you're winning or on the podium you have to do more i think like there's no choice really unless unless you just want to take us a, a small wage and struggle to survive you kind of have to do more than racing and especially with the current covid situation Nothing's clear even, like, we've got a calendar for this year, but it's not even clear what will go ahead and what won't, you know? Like, so if you're doing other stuff the whole time anyway, then people remember what's going on. They, if, But if you're not, then they've forgotten you from your races last year. So when, so just going back a little bit, when you started Win TV, did you ever have any idea how popular it would become? <laughs> not really, but I already... It's pretty funny. I already got into like making videos. I bought a camera. Like it would have been quite a lot of money for me at the time. 
um, to buy this camcorder in 2009 and a MacBook computer, like, <laughs> I was on a budget as well. Yeah. Um, and then I just got that and started doing videos really early early on. So already from 2009, I was making the videos. And then 2010, I started doing the videos at the races. And they started yeah. like quite well received already. Like um, I was doing them with MTV Cut and, oh, yeah. and just doing some stuff there because I knew uh, Mono Aaron Bartlett that um, was working for them at the time and still works on the World Cup. Uh, shooting for some of the teams now, but um, just started doing those with them, and then people started to like them. They they got quite good response, and Pink Bike has always been kind of <clears throat> um, a lot of people have seen the stuff through there. So the the audience from the race side, and and then all the comments about whatever happened on the funny video, often like if something really controversial in the video. It'll blow the video up like um, it just people want to talk about it, what happened or who did what. And I'd get that inside scoop because I'm friends among a lot of the writers as well. So it gives a bit more insight to the writers and people want to see that because it can be quite, um, I don't know, like pretty plain sometimes. Like if you just get a straight interview about how the race run was and what they had for breakfast, it's like... Okay, yeah. I guess yours has always been a really different perspective. And I suppose, yeah, as a fan, that's kind of what, what definitely appeals to me. Um, now, let's just talk a little bit about stuff like Instagram, where clearly you know what you're doing. You've built a huge following. Um, you've, you've sort of, well, you've got this whole Wheelie Wednesday thing going on. How much pressure do you feel every single week to be putting something out? Huh. Have you missed any? I don't miss much, and it's been about, I don't know, it's six or seven years now, so. Um, yeah, it's probably seven years, actually. Um, That's impressive. I've probably only missed less than a handful. Wow, okay. Yeah. That's good going. It's a lot of work. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. Sometimes it's like a last minute, uh, just before dark, going out to do a video. Um just to make sure that I keep keep it consistent. Yeah. And I think people enjoy that, that, that they're going to get something to watch every Wednesday. And it might only be five, ten seconds, but they want to see what I've come up with next. I guess there's also an expectation from the brands you're representing now though as well, right? A little bit, but um, I don't know. I think they're now, now the expectation is probably a little bit less, but they because they know what I already can, am going to produce. So uh, when I first came on to G GT, then there was probably the expectation. They want to see this, you know, they want to see that. But now they know that I'm consistently putting out something. Do you factor in the time it takes to do these things, to you know manage your social stuff and um, I guess with those constant updates and stuff like that, is that something factored in into your usual sort of your working slash training week? Uh, probably not enough because <laughs> normally the the social media content or video stuff takes into my evenings quite well sometimes and then uh, choose choose up uh, time there. But it if you're like a bit more organised, you can do it pretty fast. But um, then yeah. then it can occasionally it just drags on. You can't find the song you want or. Or, in, or something like that, it just can take quite a while. So I guess that brings me back to, you were sort of saying, you know, um, it might be the case if you're maybe not number one, you need to, you know, factor in different things that you can offer a brand. Now, you're one of the few racers that have been competing and doing both the Downhill World Cup and the Enduro World Series, and you've been doing that, I'm not sure if you've, how many rounds you've missed, but you've been doing most of the World Series, Enduro World Series since 2015, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, 2016, I've been doing most of it. 2015, I think I did three or four rounds, probably four rounds. So quite a lot, anyway. Um, and and it's and it. I mean, it feels like it's just maybe you and your brother are kind of the only ones 
doing it to that extent. Is there, I don't know, I was going to say, like, um, do you ever feel like maybe you need to just go a bit easier on yourself to have more time to recover and stuff like that? Or do you just love riding so much that you want to get as much bike time as possible? Most uh, there's times where you've been doing a lot of downhill and you go to the enduro, you're definitely not fit enough. Or like you've lost that little bit that that makes you able to compete at the top end. And then that can be pretty tough, but um, pretty much just getting to go to all the cool places that the EWS goes and just ride all these places is pretty cool. And I was kind of, I'd struggle to not do that. So I'm like, okay, just enjoy it too much, I think. And that probably is detrimental to my performance, but um, just just enjoy riding bikes. But it's not like you well, you say it's detrimental to your performance, but you did win a round in 2017 of the Enduro World Series, didn't you? So, you know, I, I guess um, there's very few athletes you could say would be able to, you know, compete at the top of two. I guess they're fairly fairly similar in a lot of ways. But like you said, the uh, the fitness is kind of different between the two. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite different. But then it's I think being enduro fit is not gonna be too detrimental to downhill. It'd be more being um, built like a downhill rider is probably gonna slow you down on the enduro like a little bit. You don't don't need that extra bulk but then in downhill I think you do because you're going to have a few crashes here and there and you need to hang on to that final run where you're on the limit do you feel like what do you personally want to see more downhill races kind of transitioning and doing both or are you kind of happy as it is I'd like to see more people have a crack but and and probably I'd like to see less separation between the two like there's still some Times like downhill guys talking it down. Yeah, I'm like, well, come along and race it if you want. Do you think because they haven't done it, they maybe don't appreciate how tough it could be? Yeah, I think I think there's a bit of that, and then in like not so much now, but when it first came in, they probably took some of the money that was going towards downhill, and there was a little bit of jealousy probably, but that that's getting taken away for this new thing. But now. If you go to an enduro, you have to be like properly fit. Like I have a friend um, from Slovakia actually that used to be in uh, the Boyer Hansgrove Road team, and yeah. now he does um, enduro. So he should be fit enough, you'd hope, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, <laughs> he's he's saying that to ride an EWS day is similar to doing like a, a classics race. Like if it's a full day. He's averaging over 300 watts most of the time, just pedaling around. And then you've got to do all the stages down. So you're, it's it's a full-on uh, thing, and it's uh, you've got to be properly an athlete for that. So do you feel – so I think I've, I've read and heard a few different um, enduro races talking about, you know, the guys that have competed from – the very first Enduro World Series in 2013 through to now, and just they've they've sort of spoken about how the tracks have changed quite a bit. How how have you sort of taken to those changes? Because it sounds like they've maybe gone from more. Well, I mean, I, I don't know personally, but maybe it sounds like they've gone from where they used to have maybe longer pedaling sections within the stages and potentially be a little bit longer to now essentially, you know. Um, a series of almost World Cup downhill style stages throughout the day or, or over a couple of days. What's your sort of take on that? Um, I would say they've still got some of the flat and long stages, but um, they've made the races shorter to try and make participation easier, I think, and get more more numbers, which is... In some sides, fair enough, but then I think the top end should still be racing like a very hard, long day, you know? like I From my side, I enjoyed those big days where it was like you've done a massive day and you come home, you, you're cooked, you know? like. But how much, how many metres of climbing would you sort of, would you say is a big day for you? 
Uh, over 1,800. Probably it's like a good day. And in the enduro race, a lot of that can be off-road. So it's... It's a pretty grueling. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard day. And if it's raining, that's like a, a super hard day, you know. Like, well, I guess now you're in the UK, that's... Um... <laughs> plenty of practice for you plenty of practice for the rain anyway yeah (laughs) um okay Uh, i want to just move on to something a bit more general before we wrap up i just wanted to get your take on um i guess what where where do you think um the sport's going in terms of what what's the industry doing well right now and what do you think the mountain bike industry could do better um well it's a hard one it's a very broad one sorry to to chuck it in there uh i think we're doing pretty well with like growing the sport like it's it's really big now and the majority of the mainstream people do have now a nice or reasonable mountain bike whereas i don't know even five years ago i'd tell someone what i do and they don't understand like now they have some at least some understanding of the sport but now with that many new numbers, there's probably not enough places like the, to ride quite often, depending where you're from. But like here in the UK, they're getting a bit more strict on illegal trails. Um, but then there's not enough places to do it legally, but then everyone has a mountain bike. So that's that's a little bit of a problem, but I don't know how you solve that. It's a hard one. Do you feel the sport's quite welcoming in terms of i guess if we're looking into you know stuff like inclusivity and diversity and stuff like that do you think it's um something that's really hard to get into nowadays or or do you think it was actually harder i think you know back when you started it's pretty open to most people but it's just the the cost but the cost has probably improved from when i started because now you can get like a secondhand bike that's couple of years old and it's it's going to be quite cheap because there's so many out there yeah um cool so i think from that side it's not too bad um and the sport is growing massively so i'd like to see like personally more be put back to the sport um even just to the riders as well like if you're a professional rider if you're a professional rider 10 years ago you didn't really earn any different to what you do now but the sport is way bigger i was going to say is that do you you still see or see that divide you know the top guys making a decent living and then well and then that just drops off so you've got both men and women kind of you know like you said earlier not making a living wage do you feel that 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 gap still as big as it used to be it's maybe a little bit better but the sport is now I don't, I don't, have, can't quantify it, but it's it's way bigger. Um, so the sales are way bigger. Like you can't argue otherwise. You just look. Every brand is sold out right now. That can't, like, I understand the supply issue, but it can't be a bad problem to have when you've sold all your product. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But um, um, this is more from. Uh, people just breaking into the sport, they they still struggle now. Like it's it's hard to get a ride or to get support, or and especially even to make make any money from it. So I mean, obviously you've been kind of doing your part with the privateer award. Yeah, are we going to see more of that this year? Assuming yeah, that there's going to be some racing. Uh, if the racing's going ahead, that's the plan. Um, I've been working on some plans also with Shimano to support privateers more. Oh, great. Um, so they're opening up a like privateer area in, in their pit where the privateers can go t- to have their bikes fixed and also to get like a drink or whatever, just to hang out. Have They have somewhere that's at the track but close because normally if you're a privateer, you've got to park pretty far away. They're not. They're not like letting you in next to the uh, top team, but um, so that's good from Shimano's side, and then um, they're able to get any parts for their bike that they need. So, oh, that's cool. That's great that you've done that. I mean, it's almost insane that you know. I guess no one had kind of thought of it or or done it 
ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's great that you stepped in and kind of um, flown the flag and made sure those guys are starting at least to get a little bit better looked after. Yeah, so I'll probably try to do a raffle of some sort. It's just working out how to do it uh, without getting taxed for it. But um, because <laughs> I want to give away the money anyway. Um, yeah, of course. But to do a raffle of some sort to um, support those guys and, and they can then the people that donate to the protest can actually win a frame or something from myself, which will be cool. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. And probably an easier way to um, get a bit more money together for those protests. Yeah, definitely. I guess incentivizing it's always going to get more people involved, right? Yeah, and then it's a good good feeling when you do support someone, you know. Those races, um, we didn't do it last season because there was no certainty on the schedule. But the year before, we gave a thousand euros away to each uh, best privateer at each race, which is sometimes quite a hard choice to make who it is. But um, we... We to see those riders then go on and do some of the stuff they've done is quite cool to a feeling, you know, and and just to see the reaction of them when you give them a thousand euros is pretty crazy. I can imagine. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's great to see and to have, you know, look back over since you started doing it and just all the recipients always being so yeah so chuffed and and they've now done quite a lot within racing as well like even um camille balance well, now, was is now the world champion for women and she she got the yeah, award exactly. the other year so it's like quite cool and you're now teammates with the denim destroyer right yeah, yeah he's on my team now so exactly it, things kind of go full circle you know and it sh- it shows that th- those um, it's important how important it is to have privateers. If if your current world champion is a, was a privateer only one year ago, one year before, that's uh, shown you how important it is to allow them to be able to race and to make a pathway for them to get to that top end. Well, yeah, you're essentially gifting someone an opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah, that makes a massive difference. Um, okay, so just before we wrap up, I just wanted to get your take on, obviously we're under, we're, here in the UK, we're currently under lockdown, so we can't go about our everyday lives. Well, I guess we haven't really been able to do that for about a year now, but um, just looking ahead at the race calendar, assuming that it is going to go ahead, fingers crossed, is there any particular standouts that you're really looking forward to this year? Um, it's... It's a hard one from from the downhill side. If if it wasn't limited capacity, which I can't see that uh, happening, Fort William's always like a favourite to go, and I wouldn't mind like going up there before and getting some riding in there before the event. But um, I can't see them allowing the crowds that they normally do with the current situation. Like, but that would be normally like one of my favourites. Um, and then Snowshoe is the other downhill one I really enjoyed last time we went there. It was um, the end of 2019, right? Yeah, it was the final round, and it was probably, for, from from that World Cup finish, like, it was the most exciting downhill race in a long time. Very dramatic. Yeah, like the last rider, Danny, comes down and decides the whole World Cup overall between Loic and uh, Marie, so it was like... They had to wait for that, and then then Danny won the race. It was like pretty cool race to be at, and then just that like we need more races in the US because there is a big uh, audience and crowd there, and they're quite informed fans as well. Like they all watch all the videos, so it's like pretty cool to be racing there, and just the amount of support those those people were driving like ten hours, and they're like, yeah, it's my local race. I'm like ten hours, <laughs> but but that's cool, and I I hope we can make it back there because it, it was a good good one from the downhill side. But then on the enduro side, I'd say um probably one of my favorite places to go, and then one of my f- favorite races is um in the Dolomites, the Canizé, uh EWS there. That just like an epic place. The whole time is like. 
almost like you're looking at a painting, you know? And then you're racing down a big alpine stage with that backdrop. It's pretty epic. How was it, um, just sorry, going back to 2020, you mentioned, you know, about Fort William and the crowds and stuff. I just wondered how it was doing the limited number of races you had in 2020. So what was it a double header at Maribor and a double header at, um, in Loser? And obviously, uh, you had the world champs as well, but did it, did it really detract from that atmosphere and that feeling for you as a rider without the crowds? I would say, I would say it didn't, but then if, if I'd have been able to do a race the week before with a crowd, I would say it did, you know? So like you kind of, because we haven't had a race for so long and then it was just so good to be back at the races, it almost felt like that feeling that was that, that good, you know, but, with without the crowd, it's not the same. But there was was um, sections of track where people would like break in. At Maribor, there was one section of track where there's a bunch of uh, people dressed up as all sorts of <laughs> weird things, and then they were quite drunk and making a lot of noise. So there was one section of track where there was a crowd, right, and okay. that was like pretty cool, you know. Well, fingers crossed. Such words. We can make it, well, not we, but it happens this year and, and, you know, they can get that vaccine rolled out and more people can attend these events because it is special to go and watch them. Yeah, yeah, um, And let's let's hope we see you out on the races, you know, and get Win TV rolling again from the pits. And uh, I always enjoy the chat walks especially. I always think they're really funny. <laughs> so um, thanks so much for your time today, Win, um, And good luck for everything you get up to this year. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. No worries, mate. And to everyone, just don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. So whenever Bike Radar launches a new episode, you'll always get it straight away on time. Thank you. See us. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.